When we read the Scriptures, we need to be careful not to grab them from where they were written, where the events happened, where the words were penned, and yank them into our day, our worldview, our grid, but rather to try as best we can to propel ourselves back into the world in which these events happened and these words were laid down, to understand what they meant in their original context, and then to bridge that context into our world where we can apply them to ourselves. This is the way that we read the scriptures. And it can be very difficult when you have a, a completely different worldview between the world of the scriptures, whichever world we're talking about, because it spans millennia, and the world in which we live now. And, and there can be completely different understandings of what is important, what is valuable, what is the lens through which to view things. There have been a number of different continua that people have used as the main measure of society or people or events. I think many people look at the world on a spectrum of love and hate. And they want to go toward love and away from hate. That is a very common thing today. Laudable if we understand love and hate biblically and accurately. Others think of things in terms of war and peace. Can we have more peace, less strife, less uproar, upheaval? Others throughout the ages have looked at things in terms of uh, people who are higher and lower, perhaps the intelligentsia and then the less educated common people. But in the world of the Scriptures, and I would say especially in the world of the Old Testament, but coming into the New as well, the main grid was actually shame versus honor. You wanted to avoid shame, and you wanted to pursue honor, and that was almost universal. And shame, the, the idea, uh, was not something inside of you, private, hidden, nor was honor. In fact, the word honor in the Hebrew, it's kavod. It's actually the only word I actually have tattooed on myself. Got in Israel, no big deal. It was, look, it was the oldest continuously operating tattoo shop in the world. No big deal. But it was in the old city of Jerusalem. But the word, it means weightiness, importance. And you hear that, that the idea of weight, God should be given honor, more weight to who he is and to his word. We should strive for honor. And these things, honor and shame, were tied to your reputation and your relationship to the community at large. They were not private. They were not isolated. It wasn't like, you do you, and as long as you're happy with you, that was not the view of things in the least. We have to recognize that. And the effect went both ways. The more honor and esteem I like, bring to myself in the community, the more I bring to the community, and they are honored by me. The same thing with shame. There'd have been no respect for ruggedly individualistic thinking, like be true to yourself and don't worry about what others think. If that was the case, then we would see people being very excited about Mordecai taking a stand and saying, consequences be damned. Instead, he is the target. He is the outlier. He is, in many ways, the pariah the moment he makes that decision. In fact, honor and shame in this world was even thought to affect a person's God or gods, and we see this come up even in the Psalms. Oh my God, and you I trust, let me not be put to shame. I don't want to be put to shame because you will be put to shame. And, and look at some of the arguments of Moses or Joshua. If you destroy all these people, like you're hinting you might, then all the Gentiles are going to, to point at that and say, that God, he couldn't even keep his people. And like, won't that bring shame upon your name? So this is the backdrop for this budding conflict 
in the book of Esther. And it was budding in our text last week, and it flowers very quickly into full poisonous bloom here in our text today. And when a man like Haman, who has no honor of his own, finds himself publicly shamed, he is going to overcompensate big time. The escalation uh, here is it's, it's stunning. If you think about some of the, the real early sins, how, how quickly it goes from eating the wrong fruit to murder, or even that first murder, right? The, the quick escalation between God preferred your offering to mine, we get from that to, hey, come out here a minute. I want to show you this cool rock I found. That's quick. This makes that pale by comparison. That, that there is one guy who will not bow down to him, one bad interaction, and Haman now hates and targets an entire race. Now, certainly there was some animosity there before. We know that this Agagite slash Benjamite feud goes back centuries. We've talked about that at some length. But he, he begins to act on it based on one interaction. And what's more, he formalizes that hatred into a political position, and it takes on a life of its own. It hardens, and it hardens his heart with it until he doesn't care who is hurt or even killed or even wholesale slaughtered as long as he achieves his goals. As the text begins here, he's decided what he's going to do about this situation. He just has not yet decided exactly when. And Haman, like many people in his world, believed very much in lucky and unlucky days. Divining the right time to do something was very much all important. And so he sets out to do this. It's been some years now since uh, Esther has taken the throne. And he is now, Haman, in a, a very prominent position, second to the king himself. And in the month of Nisan, he thinks it's, it's time to just sit down and set a date. Now, Nisan has one S, it's not a car. It's a Jewish month, the first month in the Jewish calendar. There are two references to cars in the Bible. God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden in his fury, and all of the apostles were in one accord. This isn't one of those two. Why do you put up with me? I don't know. But here we have the casting of poor. Poor means a lot, kind of like dice or something, and somehow they contained all sorts of numbers, and they contained the months of the year. And he is going to take part in a rite, a ritual that will give him the exact right time so that the gods or God will be on his side and he will come out on top because nothing is more important to Haman than coming out in top. And we see here the origin of the name of this festival of Purim. That's just the plural of pur. It means lots that this whole book is giving us the, or the origin story of. So Purim, it's actually an Akkadian word. And when it's time to cast them, notice here it doesn't say he cast poor. He went into his bedroom and got out his dice and did it. It says they cast poor. Who are they? Undoubtedly the sages or magi or some sort of astrologers, some sort of diviners that he brings into his employ to work out what heaven would have him do to achieve his hellish goals. Then he finds the right day. It's going to be in the month of Adar. It's going to be the 13th of that month. All that's left to do is to sell it to the king. No problem. Unlike Queen Esther, 
who must be summoned by Ahasuerus, Haman has unlimited access, unfettered at any time. We find out at the end here, they're, they're drinking buddies. And Haman, who is only concerned with defending his own slighted honor and ultra-thin skin, is going to sell this as if he is defending the king and the empire. There are vague warnings throughout his words. There are deceptions and distortions. He very intentionally plays on the fear and the greed of the king with exaggerations and misinformation. And thank goodness none of this stuff is part of our world today. Let me point out some of the things that he deceives and exaggerates here. First of all, he says, a certain people lives in the midst of your empire. A certain people. No, 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 no. You are concerned with a certain person. He's angry with Mordecai, but he's so angry he doesn't just want to kill him. He wants to snuff out his whole ethnic group. So now he's taken something that was individual. He's blown it out. We've seen this happen already before. One wife becomes all wives in all of Persia. So he's, he's exaggerating who is involved. Secondly, he says that they, they live spread throughout the entire kingdom. A certain people scattered abroad and, and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces, all 127 provinces, of your empire. Now, they were, in a sense, dispersed. So there's a kernel of truth here. We talk about the Jewish diaspora. We talk about them being now in exile and, and scattered a bit. But they certainly were not found in all 127 provinces, but only a small handful. There were a very small portion of the Persian Empire's population. Thirdly, he says that their laws are different from everyone else's. This, too, has a kernel of truth, but then becomes a lie. Surely they had additional ceremonial, religious, and cultural standards, like many people, especially those who remain distinct and, and avoid becoming assimilated into the culture around them. But that doesn't mean they reject the laws of the land and mass. And certainly that hasn't been what we've seen so far. Moments ago, we were reading, if we were reading through the text, we would say, wait a minute, didn't I just read about uh, a Jew saving the life of the king? If they were subverting Persia, why would they want to do that? So he's coming in with these wild and very vague, very general accusations, but it works. He's basically saying they're weird, we don't want them here, they're outsiders who won't become one of us, they won't melt into the pot, let's get rid of them. And then slickly, quickly shifts from they have their own laws, they have their own rules, to they do not keep the king's laws. As if that's the same thing. Again, there is one guy who didn't follow one of the king's rules, and that was a command to bow whenever Haman walked by. But there's a, a very big jump from one guy breaking one insignificant rule that affects one man to this entire people group does not keep the king's laws. The inference is that being culturally separate amounts to being nationally antagonistic. Again, the fact that a Jewish man just saved the king's life blows that right out of the water. This makes me think of our discussion just a few weeks ago in our Sunday school class on the Baptist Catechism about the Ninth Commandment and how at the heart of the Ninth Commandment is the notion of bringing shame on someone else in order to kind of balance some kind of 
honor for yourself, some kind of cheap imitation honor at any rate. This is not what we want to see in a leader, and yet it's what we see in both Ahasuerus and his right-hand man, Haman. And he concludes it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If you know anything about Persia, you know this is a, a wild and ironic thing for him to say. Looking at some of the other empires of the same kind of basic era, you've got the Assyrian Empire. You remember how, how Israel became a northern and southern kingdom. And a couple hundred years before, we see the southern kingdom taken into Babylon and then overtaken by Persia. The northern kingdom was taken over by Assyria. And they were very intolerant. Culturally, religiously, they said, we want to rob you of your identity. We don't want you worshiping your own gods from your own land. We don't want you having your own language. We don't want you having your own customs. And so we are going to take a bunch of your people and scatter them all over our kingdom. And then we're going to take people from all over our kingdom and scatter them all over here. We're going to do everything we can to make you intermarry and kind of cease to exist as a distinct people. It was a very effective policy. But Persia did not take that, that route. Persia said, Listen, worship your God. Be your people. Celebrate your holidays. Keep the tax money coming in. Stay happy. Don't revolt. And we'll all be good. Cyrus the Great says, yeah, go on back. Rebuild your temple. Rebuild your city. Put a wall around it. Just make sure you let in the tax collectors when I send them your way. It was tolerance. And now we find Haman leading them back in the opposite direction. It would not be in your best interest to tolerate them. So, he's got the great solution, of course. Let it be written that these people ought to be killed, destroyed. This is perfectly executed. The king is the perfect mark for this presentation, and he ties the bow on it of offering a bribe. And it's a big one, too. 10,000 talents of silver. That's 375 tons of of silver. Herodotus, the, the ancient historian, lists the entire yearly tax revenue income for the, the Persian Empire on a good year as being a little under 15,000 talents. So this is like a little more than two-thirds of their annual income. Haman's like, I'll just, I'll contribute that to the coffers and that will help with the expenses involved here. Now where is Haman going to get that much money? I think we all know where he plans to get it from the Jewish people that he murders. Now, this is going to have a great effect, I think. The coffers in Persia were light. You'll remember that when Esther became queen, he was so excited, King Ahasuerus, that he issued a remission of taxes and so lost a bunch of income there. We also have had several years of fruitless war against the Greeks. That costs a ton of money. He's burning through their savings. And now here comes Haman. I've got an idea. It'll bring money in, and it'll eliminate a threat. Now, when we read verse 11, the response of the king to the bribe, it's a very hard thing to translate. You probably have a footnote in your Bible suggesting an alternate translation. If you don't, you might want to put a little star there and just write, hard to translate. It's hard to know whether the king took the bribe or poo-pooed the idea and said, no, 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 no. In the NIV, we read, keep the money, the king said to Haman and do with the people as you please. Like, I don't need your money. I'm more important than you. We see in the ESV maybe a little bit more 
woodenly translating, leaving it open to interpretation, the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. It almost sounds like he's saying, no, you don't need to provide the money. I'll fund this thing, but go on and do what you are going to do. Another translation, the king said, the money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. It seems to me, and again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I can work with the stuff, and I've read a number of textual uh, commentaries on it and seen the, the pros and cons, that what he's saying here is basically, well, it's your money. Do what you want, and go ahead and do what you want with the people as well. We're going to bring in some money here, and we're going to have to spend money to make money. And I think what, what really uh, is the, the deciding factor here is when we look forward into chapter 4, verse 7, and chapter 7, verse 4, it's pretty clear that some money has changed hands. We read in, in chapter 4, verse 7, Mordecai said all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. And then in chapter 7, Esther says, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And so they've been sold, she says. When telling the story, we include the money that was offered, and it seems to me accepted. Either way, though, he's swallowed Haman's little presentation, hook, line, and sinker. Seems like convincing a great king to wipe out an entire ethnic group that's part of his nation under his protection just for being different would be an incredibly difficult task. One would hope, but no, it's super easy, barely an inconvenience. Ahasuerus is a fool by any measure here. There's no investigation. He doesn't even request clarification. He's so lazy. He doesn't say, hold up a minute, who is this certain people? And what new development makes them suddenly a threat to me? Which of my laws specifically don't they keep? If he'd done a little probing, think about it. Well, they didn't bow to me. Okay, and? And you want to spend a bunch of money to deal with that, with your wounded pride? No, he's got the one counselor, and he accepts everything he says unquestioningly until a brave woman comes in and disrupts that dynamic. But at this time, he believes him. He hands over his signet ring, effectively making Haman the king in this matter. And remember, once decreed, the laws of the Medes and the Persians cannot be changed. And Haman has now irreversibly set himself against God's people, encoding it in the law of the Medes and the Persians. The text will continue to remind us of this again and again. We've seen already that he's continually called Haman the Agagite. It doesn't continually say Mordecai the Jew, although that comes up a few times, but sometimes it just says Mordecai. Usually it just says Mordecai, but it's Haman the Agagite. It reminds us he is a Amalekite descendant of a king who held uh, Israel in contempt and plundered them and fought against them and ultimately was cut to pieces before the Lord by the prophet Samuel. Now, added to an Agagite is this new title, the Enemy of the Jews. Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And this isn't the last time we're going to read that title bestowed upon him. By handing over his signet ring, by the way, Ahasuerus becomes every bit as culpable as Haman. He hasn't avoided it simply by passing the buck. He's the king. The buck stops there. And now the plan can really spring into action. Having convinced the king with these generalities and vagaries, 
Haman announces now the very specific day in which this particular people would be targeted and precisely how. Hiding behind the king's name, he sends this decree to all levels of government, nobles, governors, and satraps, to, quote, destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews. Legal genocide. I've mentioned already a number of times that this book is filled with twos and pairs. The number two, the concept two, emphasizing probably Esther, who's given two names here, being pulled in two directions. As a faithful uh, member of Israel, a follower of the God of heaven and earth, and also as a queen in Persia. And here we deviate from that. We have these threes, and they stand out. Destroy, kill, and annihilate. All three of them. And he sends it out to the satraps, governors, and officials. This is kind of shaking the reader, saying, look what's happening. This is the climax of the first act, if you will. Now, this does not, as it goes out to every corner of the empire, simply allow for the killing of Jews and taking what is theirs. It does not just simply encourage people to kill the Jews and take what is theirs, but commands them to destroy, kill, and annihilate men, women, and children and plunder their possessions, apparently to go into the royal treasury to make good on Haman's promise. And when we see in verse 13 the plundering, it brings to mind 1 Samuel 14, when the Amalekites are called those who had plundered them. That's their identity in the eyes of God and his people. The Amalekites are those who had plundered them, and once again, he is going to plunder Israel. It must have seemed so delicious to Haman to finally write these things centuries later. And by having this, this date be so far off into the future, it almost adds kind of a psychological torture to the, the mix. Think about it. It's the, it's the first month, and in the twelfth month, there's a day... And it's exactly the same day of the month. There's a day just looming there when we will be put to death, when that will be allowed, that will be commanded. There will be nowhere to hide in the known world. The decree went out in every language to every corner of the empire. They can't escape and go out to the country. The decree went there as well. And so there is going to be a long and scary and anxious year ahead this is perhaps more in the spirit of Advent than the way we celebrate and observe Advent today, where we know how it ends and when. Oh, I see what's happening. We're going to have a few weeks, and it's going to be lighting a few candles, and then at the end of it, we're going to open some presents, we're going to eat some candy canes, it's going to be amazing. When in reality, waiting for the coming Messiah was at times scary and often seemed to be going on forever, and people began to doubt more and more if deliverance would even come. And then verse 15, the end of this chapter and the end of this pericope, and probably the end of this act. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. The decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This reminds me a bit of Nero fiddling while Rome burns. Again, we see this playing into the banquet motif of the book of Esther. There are ten banquets in all, if we count this one, these guys sitting down and, and drinking, which would probably have been a formal thing to celebrate and kind of finalize what has been decided. 
The first three banquets lead to the first queen, Vashti, being dethroned. The fourth banquet celebrates the coming of the new queen, Esther, and this one is celebrating the pending and impending destruction of the Jewish people. The next time this king and this con man drink together, it will be the beginning of the end for Haman and his wicked plans. But at this point, he thinks he's won. He thinks he's on top of the world. Haman has set the date. The decrees have been set. It's all in the bag. 500 years earlier, Solomon had described what's probably going on in the heart of this man. If you look at Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, there are six things that the Lord hates, we read. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Does any of this not apply to Haman in this moment? It's like a composite police sketch. And they say, okay, yeah, have you seen this guy? Oh yeah, he was right there in Esther chapter 3 all along. He is indeed the epitome of human carnality, wickedness, selfishness, This is why whenever the name Haman is read, when Purim is being celebrated and they're doing the reading through the book of Esther, people boo, kids make those rattles go, there's noise, there's there's all sorts of things to kind of try to bury him, try and and, and cover up what he's done with sound and with, with some kind of objections. There was nothing sacred about human life to Haman. You know, during Advent, we, we think about um, amazing and beautiful, serene moments, like, like when uh, a baby in the womb, John the Baptist, leaps for joy because another baby in the womb is nearby. And we say, isn't it amazing that such a, a small little thing can be for us a sign of God's eternal cosmic plan coming together? And we, we, we just celebrate that. Haman's view of things is the very opposite. Out of sight equals out of mind for him. He won't be the one personally killing men, women, and children. He'll just be the one personally gaining from their death, and so no problem. But we know what Haman did not know. First of all, we know that while his plan seems to be coming together perfectly, mustache twirlingly perfectly, Haman isn't truly in charge of anything. He feels like everything's falling in place. Nothing could stop him now. But the fact is that the author of the book wants to point out to us just how out of control he is. Certain little things are doing this. For example, up to this point, we have been seeing Persian month names. The Persian calendar is what we're using. Suddenly now, the Hebrew lunar calendar and Hebrew month names, Nisan, Adar, come to the fore. Why? Well, this thing is sent out on the 13th of Nisan. Does anyone know what starts on the 14th of Nisan? Passover. So they are hearing about this threat to just completely destroy them the night that they are preparing to celebrate when God delivered them from a threat that would completely destroy them. In his providence, God is reminding them, I was faithful back then, I'll be faithful for you right now. 
In fact, this would be the night when the children of Israel recited the whole narrative of bondage and deliverance in Egypt. It's as if by choosing this date, an ancient contest of deities has been reignited. In the last round, it looked like all was lost for God and his people, right up until Yahweh utterly destroyed and humiliated each god of Egypt in turn with a plague, and then completely broke their power and led his people out and toward a promised land. Like Pharaoh, Haman looks to his gods to respect and protect his own status, his own sense of self-importance, his own honor, whatever that might be. But Israel's God is sovereign over plagues and kings and the angel of death. He will deliver his people and defend his own great name as he always has. We know that he didn't. Secondly, we know that when the Purim were cast, it was Mordecai's God who determined how they landed. It wasn't wasn't whatever spirits he may have been looking for guidance from. No, we know from Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Think about this. They're casting lots in the first month of the year. And where does it land? The last month of the year. And on one hand, you go, wow, that would be a really hard year. But this also allows them the maximum amount of time to address the coming danger, for them to fast and pray and trust in God. And we'll see that that's what happens. And, and you know, it's, it's so ironic. There's so many ironies in here. I, I mean, I'm sure many dissertations have been written on exactly lists of these ironies, but I love this one. When he says it would not be in your interest to tolerate them, a very literal translation of that is it would not be in your interest to let them rest. It would not be in your interest to allow them to rest. And at the end of the last chapter of Esther, four times, three of them right in a row and three verses that are boom, 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 we're told how it is that Israel was able then to rest, to find rest. They find far greater rest than they had before. Because when God comes and delivers and saves us, he doesn't just restore you to the tenuous situation in which, say, Adam and Eve walked in the garden where you might fall again at any moment, but he makes things better. We were talking in Sunday school this morning about being imputed with the positive righteousness of Christ. Not just our sins taken away, but Christ's righteousness given to us, to our account. Things are going to be yet better for Israel at the end of all of this. And finally, while Haman thought he was settling a centuries-old score between King Saul and King Agag, we know it's actually a much older war being waged. And it goes back to the garden and the curse. And we read about it all the way up through the book of Revelation, which, by the way, I'm preaching on on Christmas Eve. It's going to be a weird one like old times. Come and see. But this is an ancient war, a, a, a war of all the cosmos, light versus darkness, the dragon versus the lamb. We see reflected here in this horrible year stretching out before them, our own default state in in the course of this war. That yes, we were walking around in darkness with a death sentence hanging over our head from Genesis 3 on. Because the, the, the promise, the threat was 
in that day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Now that moment they didn't die, they died spiritually, but death entered the picture and there it hung over their heads and here it hangs over ours as well. We read Romans chapter 6 about how there are none that are righteous, no, not one. We, we read about how each of us has gone our own way and turned away from our God. When we have communion, like we did last week, we affirm together in our communion confession prayer, each of us rightly deserves God's eternal punishment. There's a sentence of death that came in Genesis 3 that hangs over the heads of every person. But while Satan was willing to part with great wealth here and flex all the power at his disposal to keep us in his clutches, Christ was willing to pay a much higher price to save us alive. And that's what we say next in that prayer. We rightly deserve your eternal punishment for the sake of your son, Jesus. Have mercy on us. Forgive us. Renew us that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. King Ahasuerus may have quickly and easily sold these people into death without much thought, but they weren't his to sell. And whether we're talking 30 pieces of silver or 10,000, even the most powerful men alive cannot sell a people if they are not theirs to give. Yahweh is the king whose signet ring Haman would have needed to actually be given Israel to destroy, and Yahweh will not give it. Of course, just as God's favor didn't mean his Old Testament people would not suffer, so we're told in John 15, in our current setting as well, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the, word, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. There are in that echoes of how Haman hated the Jewish people. Why? Because while they were dispersed everywhere, they kept separate. They had different values. They had different ways of doing things. They even had distinct dress that made them easy to point out. And it just, it angered him. He hated it. We read in John 15 and elsewhere that the same sort of thing will happen with the church, the new covenant people of God. We see that like Israel of old, we are dispersed and we are separate, which is an odd thing. Usually the more and longer one is dispersed, one group of people, the less separate and distinct they are. And here we see that, that like, we, like we discussed a couple weeks ago, remaining separate, remaining faithful... Remaining true to God's covenant and his promises is no guarantee that we will be celebrated. Things are going great for Mordecai and Esther as long as they go along with the culture around them. Things are going really great. She's queen. He's done a great deed for the king. And he's sure at some point he's going to come back and he'll be rewarded. But as soon as someone takes a stand, all hell rages against them. St. Paul says those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble, but wait for it. Where's the promise? But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Now, it's so easy to read this and say, wouldn't it be fun if we all had the, the rattles and the, the noisemakers and we tried to just make Haman the bad guy? 
And we said, isn't it great that we have a God who delivers us from the bad guys and that we're the good guys and that in us is nothing but light and wonderfulness? But the scriptures will not permit us to do that. As we continue to read through the epistles, we find that living inside each of us is a little Haman, the old man, the old woman, the old Adam, the old Eve, seeking a worldly, fleshly honor that is disinterested in God's word or God's reputation, his great name, that is fueled by greed and selfishness and revenge and self-worship and willing to sacrifice others to advance our own glory. All the stuff that we despise about Haman can be found in some form in our own hearts. It's honor via shame, which is destined to collapse in on itself. And it is the very opposite of Christ how he lived, how he commanded us to live. It is the very opposite of our Lord whose spirit is at work within us, lusting against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. Remember what Jesus taught in Matthew 23. He's he's dunking on the Pharisees, and he says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. And then he says to us in Luke 14, when you are invited somewhere, take the lowest place, so that when the host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. That's not just a dinner party life hack. That is a life philosophy. That is how we approach the world and and not only our God, but other people as Christians. To think of others more highly than ourselves, to set ourselves low, not like Haman, to attain for the most glory, to reflect on myself that I can. And I think this gets dangerous as well when we consider the very same impulse that was in Haman that may be native to our hearts, hopefully in smaller and smaller amounts as we are sanctified, But this is the same impulse that feeds racism and xenophobia even among God's people? Is there anything more, what about those people, than what Haman says about the Jews? He's just saying it how he sees it. They're out there, they're weird, they won't fit in, they have different laws, different culture, they're from a different part of the world. Let's do away with them. We don't want them here. This, too, is the very opposite of the heart that we ought to have as followers of Jesus Christ. When we, when we say there are people here that they don't fit in and, and they're a drag on society, let's, let's then together, let, like Haman, our disdain for them harden and calcify and formalize into our, our political views and our, our cultural views. Read even the books of the law. Deuteronomy 10 For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe, unlike Ahasuerus. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, the alien, giving him food and clothing. Even if we believe that the every cast of the lot is from the Lord, it's every decision is part of God's sovereign will, we can still channel that inner Haman. And look at those who are less fortunate than ourselves and say, well, that's the hand they were dealt. That's their lot in life. 
That's their poor in life. You ever wonder where that phrase comes from? It comes from the idea of a lot. That must be what God wants for them then. A little more suffering than me, a little less uh, comfort than me. I'm not going to go out of my way to hurt someone in order to establish myself like Haman, but I'm not going to help them either. I've even heard someone say to me in this very building, hey, we could do that to help the poor, but didn't Jesus say the poor you always have with you? Isn't it a lost cause? How many Hamans are there in the world today? And how often do we justify ruthless tactics and, and callous means if we approve of the ends? We need to be on guard against any of this stuff that might sneak into our hearts. And remember that we are every bit as fallible as Haman, as Ahasuerus. And remember the truth of God's word. In Proverbs 24, we read, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? This Advent, we think to ourselves, we can probably put ourselves in the shoes of people who are looking ahead at a very bleak, difficult year. We've had a couple of them recently where you look ahead and say, I don't know if deliverance is coming or when. And we can say at the end of that year, I can imagine what it would be like if there was some kind of a decree that I and all my people would be put to death. Remember this good news. Jesus Christ was put to death in your place. And when you were washed and made clean, and when you had your sins taken from you, and the righteousness of Christ imputed into you so that you were in far better standing than Adam could have ever imagined, you were given a new heart, and you are being made into a new creation. And part of that means looking into the heart for vestiges of the old Adam. I've named my old man Haman. And really connect with that guy at the core. I'm so important. What's more important than me attaining the greatest greatness I can? The seeds are there in all of our hearts. Pray that God will uproot them. Put them to death yourself. Advent is traditionally a time of re uh, repentance. That's why last week I was joking about wearing the wrong color stole. It was red. It's supposed to be purple. That's the color of repentance. Just like during Lent, you prepare by repenting, dying to yourself. Advent is the same. And when, when we you know, turn on Handel's Messiah, how does it start out? Make straight the way of the Lord. Let every mountain be made low and every valley filled in. Make a straight path for the coming King, the newborn King. Let us pray this Advent that where Ahasuerus, Haman's stuff is bubbling around in our hearts, he will pull it out of us. He will replace it with promises that what God has done before, he will do again. When things look bleak, don't look to yourself. Don't look into your own heart. Don't look to your own survival and your own glory. Look to God and His glory. Look back to what He has done in the past and forward to the promises that we have that are all in Him, yes, and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You for a very difficult story to read about what kind of wickedness the human heart is capable of carrying out. 
the kind of machinations and evil plans that can be put together and then toasted over drinks. Lord, we pray that we would not think of ourselves as beyond and above that sort of thing, that we would remember only by your grace are we kept back from the full potential for evil that is in us, and only by the particular grace of the blood of Jesus washing us are we made new, so that now we are marked not by the the kind of heart that would vault ourselves up at the expense of others, but rather the kind of mind that was in Christ Jesus, who sees ourselves as less important than others, who lifts others up at the expense of ourselves, and who proclaims repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, no matter what the cost. We pray all this in his holy name. Amen.